On this episode of AvTalk, we discuss the rapidly devolving situation in Afghanistan. And Ned Russell joins us to discuss his reporting on how airlines feel about the 737 MAX some eight months after its return to revenue service. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Hello, Jason. I'm doing well. I'm counting down the days until my children are back in school. All of them were less than two weeks away from that, but we're in the period where they're home all the time now. Uh, So they'll actually be co hosting this episode of the podcast. I have no equivalent to that story. Where's your cat? Uh, sleeping in a cardboard box. <laughs> well, then my work here is done. Fantastic, indeed. So, where, where to even begin with this? Yeah, thing? I don't. I don't. There's no. There's no transition. There's no nothing. Let's just get into it. The situation in Afghanistan has devolved more quickly than I don't want to say everyone. Because I'm, there have been a few people who are like, well, we said this was going to happen. But then most people had thought possible. And so what was a fluid situation became explosive, I, I guess is a, a, a way to phrase it. I don't know. Uh, if thankfully, right not literally. It. Yeah, thankfully, not literally. Yeah. But yeah. But we're recording on the 18th of August, and this all kind of happened over the began to happen over the weekend. As U.S. forces continued their drawdown, the Taliban continued their advance and basically their march to Kabul. And by Sunday, it was very clear that the, the Taliban had com- basically completed their their takeover of a leisurely walk through the country it seems like almost yeah their i guess re takeover or recapture of, of afghanistan and so the airport in, in kabul became basically chaos. the only chaos yeah basically the only place in the country that the US still had a significant presence and the secure side of the airfield, the the north side of the airfield, was basically the only place that the US military had control over. Control is a very loose term there too, and so is secure. Uh, At some point, neither of those things were the case. Sure. Yeah, there's two sides of the airport. There's the civil side, which is the southern side of the airfield. And then there's the northern side of the airfield, which is the the government-controlled side of the airfield. And and those sides mixed. And there was a large – I'm not sure – Everyone's perhaps seen the satellite images. I know there were some Maxar satellite images of all of the people just on the airfield. And certainly everyone has noted by now, especially listeners to this podcast, the the, the tragic incident of, of people hanging, literally hanging on to a US Air Force C-17 as it departed. And unfortunately, at least a few people fell off during departure and others were i guess caught in the gear mechanism of the aircraft and, and so that that incident is is still under investigation by the US Air Force to understand exactly what happened but the situation was was as Jason said just absolute chaos things have 
stabilized at the airport somewhat. It helps, I guess, as far as the security situation goes, is that thousands of US troops are now stationed at the airfield and providing security there, trying to get as many people out as as they possibly can. For the purposes of the podcast today, Jason and I want to take a look at some of the impacts on civil aviation and some of the things that have happened specifically related to aviation over the past few days. We're not obviously the, the podcast that gets into the totality of the situation. There are other podcasts. If you want to listen to those, we highly recommend getting the most information you can about what's happening. But we're going to focus on the on the aviation and and as much civil aviation as we can, because the situation for the civil aviation uh, has certainly devolved as well. Not quite chaos, but certainly not normal. No, <laughs> by no. any stretch of the imagination, things I think definitely peaked civil aviation-wise when that Turkish 777 dispatched into Kabul, kind of in the, the height of the, the panic there at the airport. So that was very interesting to watch from afar. Um, that aircraft went into Kabul and evacuated, I believe, Turkish personnel. It, it wasn't turned out not to be humanitarian flight in, in the strictest of sense. It did not actually even go out full, but it was from... You know, just watching from afar, it was very interesting to see a commercial aircraft go in at, at the height of kind of the panic and chaos. And what they spent four hours on the ground there. Yeah, I think it was even even closer to to five. And they had they parked on the on the secure side of the airfield and then taxied to the runway and then had to go back to parking because there were too many people on or near the runway for the aircraft to safely depart. And so they went back to where they had parked and then went and, and tried again and then departed the the second time around after after folks had cleared the runway basically. Yeah. And that flight I believe was on behalf of the the Turkish government. It was operated by Turkish Airlines on behalf of Turkey, the country. And I think that with that looking at it from afar, again, we kind of look at that and say, wow, what uh, extremely courageous crew that was to go in and do that when it was really a very unknown situation at the time. It wasn't a military aircraft. It was a civilian flight evacuating government personnel, but that was something to watch, you know, just seeing the little icon go across the sky and they did some holding pattern maneuvers as soon as they entered Afghanistan. But thankfully they got in and out seemingly without any issues and the aircraft returned to a completely ordinary commercial flight just about three hours after landing back in Istanbul. Yeah. So, I mean, it all ended well there. Shortly after that unfolded, basically the, the entire air traffic control apparatus in Afghanistan was, was taken over by the US military, handed over to the US military. And so, the en route airspace closed up. It's technically available to anyone that wants to use it, but it's uncontrolled. So there there was an Air India flight and a uh, cargo flight, I, I forget which airline specifically, that entered Afghanistan airspace, were told, we can't help you. There's, there's nobody to tell you where to go, what to do, and where any of the other traffic will be. You're on your own. And they said, no, we're going to go around. So they did that. And then the additional notams were, were issued and the, the updated ones 
are were issued today on the 18th and it's a, a reissuance of the one that says that that Kabul is being controlled by the military no no air traffic services are available and then the second notum is that that uh, Kabul is VFR only open to commercial and military aviation but you have to let us know you have to make a reservation basically uh, uh, what's called a, a prior permission required and so you get a a 60 minute window plus or minus 30 minutes on either side of when you say you're going to be there to show up to get permission to land and and do your business and, and get out fuel is not available uh, so you have to bring your own fuel if you're flying in there and as of late in the day today air stairs are unavailable for wide body aircraft so that's well, that's, uh, that's going to create some problems yeah especially since as you noted there's a, a- Pakistan 777-200 there right now has actually been on the ground for eight hours. What are they doing there for so long? But maybe that's why they're still well, there. There's no they air get, stairs. There. They, they can't get back on the airplane. Yeah. I, I mean, it's – I mean, obviously, they'll have to figure something out. But I guess the question becomes where did the air stairs go and what has happened to them since? But a constantly evolving situation, military aircraft from – the US, Australia, Great Britain, the Netherlands, Qatar, and and a whole host of others. Uh, Belgian aircraft are inbound now. So all getting their personnel out and continuing to, to see the situation evolve. What happens to civil aviation in Afghanistan when the US military is no longer in control of the airport is a huge, huge open question. And one I don't even pretend to have the beginnings of an answer to, but I, I don't think the answer is anything good. No. And to be clear, there are passenger commercial airlines in Afghanistan. There are actually a few aircraft on the ground right now. There's like Cam Air, or I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Cam Air 737-300 and an A340-300. Arena Afghan has a 734 and an A310. A couple other, 73 Classics actually. So there, there are a fair number of commercial aircraft there that haven't done anything in a number of days. But they're, they're probably not going to be operating anytime soon, are they? No. And, and one of the, I guess most circulated photos of the past week has has been the all of the people climbing on top of the Cam Air A340 that was parked at one of the gates people cl- trying to climb aboard i guess under the mistaken assumption that the aircraft was getting ready to leave but but yeah those, those aircraft i don't think are going anywhere anytime soon one Cam Air 737-300 a former Southwest Air uh, Airlines 737-300 did leave, but it did something very interesting. It flew to Iran on the 17th. Then it tried to fly back to Kabul. It circled Kabul for a very long time and then flew back to Iran, ostensibly because it was trying to land at Kabul and they didn't get permission. Then it filed a flight plan from Mashhad, Iran to Kiev in Ukraine. And then they had to divert to another city in Iran as they neared after briefly entering Turkish airspace. So what's going on with that aircraft? I have no idea. But that one is Cam Air's YA-2 
KMJ. If you want to follow, and by the time the podcast comes out on Friday, and, and see where that particular aircraft has ended up by yeah, then. Hopefully, uh, someone an will interesting let it story go there somewhere. Speaking of which, we we didn't even really mention it because it, it's not really civil aviation. But then there was the forty-something Afghan Air Force aircraft that entered Tajikistan, I believe, that were forced down, not not shot down, but were forced down. Basically, uh, a sizable chunk of the Afghani Air Force fled and entered Tajikistan airspace and was forced to land. Um, that's not something you see every day. No, nor is the, I think it was Uzbekistan sh- shot down one of the the Afghan super Tucanos that yeah a little unclear there. there 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 may have been an in flight collision or may have been shot down the last I read they weren't even sure what happened oh well in any case two of their pilots were flying an aircraft and into Uzbekistan and the aircraft did not make it but the pilots thankfully did so yeah lots of people trying to get out any way they can Jason what do you say we take a quick break. And come back and we will chat with Ned Russell, who's the uh, airlines reporter for Skifton Airline Weekly. And we're going to talk about a topic that we've discussed, oh, I don't know, a million times on the podcast, the 737 MAX. But Ned's done some new reporting and he's going to, if you've listened to the podcast, he might actually surprise you with what he's found. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by Ned Russell, who is the airlines reporter at Skifton Airline Weekly. And Ned is joining the program once again to talk about the Boeing 737 MAX, but in the context of how airlines are feeling about the aircraft. There, we've talked a lot in the past about everything from, from MCAS and getting the aircraft back into service. But this is more of a uh, what do airlines think about how the MAX is performing conversation in general. But we'll get, to, we'll get to that in just a minute. Ned, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome back, Ned. It's been a whole few minutes since I've talked to you last. <laughs> As it always is. Not good to talk to you, Jason. So, like I said, we're going to talk about how airlines are feeling about the 737 MAX and, and how uh, the 737 MAX has been performing for those airlines. But the first thing I want to talk to you about is something that you got in, into in your piece that relates to how passengers are feeling. And it's a conversation that, that Jason and I had in multiple episodes while the MAX was grounded. And there was a lot of speculation. We, we talked with our friend John Ostrow on multiple occasions who ran multiple Twitter polls, which are extremely scientific, but kind of gave an indication of, of how the aviation folks were leaning. Your piece gets into the regular passengers, and you basically say that what airlines have found is that people don't care. That's exactly right, Ian. You know, I, I spoke to four airlines, got comments from another three airlines all flying the MAX, and, and nearly across the board, people were saying that uh, travelers are not avoiding the plane. Two airlines, Alaska and Ryanair, told me flat out that they've had not had one passenger change their ticket once they found out they were on a MAX. You know, and I think the uh, the strongest indication of, of how little people actually pay attention to what the airplane is, is uh, my own husband flew on one and didn't even know he was on a MAX until I told him afterwards. That's exactly what I was going to say. Is it really 
a matter that people are learning that they're on a max and at that point don't care? Or are they taking their flights and just not knowing it the entire time from takeoff to land? I think that probably is a bit more likely. You know, I think so too. You know, it's when I flew on the max myself this spring, you know, there was no indication at the gate. There's you know, beyond anything really that you're on a max. The crew didn't announce it. The gate agents announced it. So barring people you know, actually looking to check what kind of plane they're on, I don't see why they would even find out. Yeah. I mean, I think that there was a lot of worry that when people were booking their tickets and, and airlines kept saying, well, we're going to make sure people know they're on a max. We're going to to make sure that you know people can some airlines said that we are going to make sure that people can change their flight if they find out they're on a max and they don't want to be there. I think that one of the things that that we're seeing now is that people don't read very carefully. And because the interior of the aircraft doesn't look any different than any of the other 737s they've ever been on, people don't they just don't know. And then when then they do find out, I haven't seen anyone, you know, because I'm sure this would have been a news story somewhere for some reason that, you know, if somebody found out I was tricked to flying the Max. I haven't seen any of those. So I'm assuming that people just don't care. I mean, that's really what I found out. You know, it, it, I, when I spoke to Copa Airlines, you know, they told me they really feel people have, have bigger things on their mind, the COVID-19 pandemic and everything. And they're, they're really not paying attention to what aircraft they're on. It's no one. I don't think anyone feels tricked. It's uh, it just goes to show that I a lot of people will say one thing in a poll, but when it push comes to shove, they still want to get to the destination when they want to get to the destination, regardless of what the plane is. Yeah, I think that's the biggest influence. Most passengers aren't going to realize what they're flying on until a gate agent makes an announcement, or maybe if they look at the safety card, if that airline is even differentiating the MAX in the safety card. And it's not likely at that point they're going to say, oh, wait, hold hold on, I don't want to fly in this flight, because what are their options at that point, to, to leave or sit in the airport for another seven hours and wait for the next flight that might also be operated by a MAX? If you're flying like let's say American from LaGuardia to Miami, your only choice is a max unless you suddenly decide to go through like Charlotte or something. So in some cases, it just wouldn't make any sense to avoid it. Absolutely, Jason. American's a good example. You know, they're flying their max prime practice primarily out of Miami. And on a lot of the Caribbean and Latin American routes they're flying on, it's the only flight they offer during the day. So it's it's either sit around, it's not go, or or take some way out of the way connection over Charlotte or Dallas for work to get to where you need to go. So you know, people, it just it, the fears are are really you know I, I used Mirage in the story. Some people have have comments on that, but I think it's true. The the, the fears just have not materialized as as we feared about nine months ago. So what do airlines have to say? We we, we have figured out at this point that passengers simply just don't care or they don't care enough to avoid the aircraft. Tell us a bit about what airlines are thinking about the aircraft right now. How is it performing? What do they have to say? Well, airlines, frankly, love the aircraft. You know, I had three carriers uh, tell me point blank that it's performing better than their expectations in terms of fuel performance. Now, there's different measures of that. But uh, on a high level, uh, the the plane is doing better than they hoped. You know, Alaska Airlines uh, impressively reports that they're getting 25% fuel, uh, better fuel performance from the MAX than the A320, which is replacing. And, you know, it, of course, the A320 is a much older plane, but, you know, they had anticipated a 20% improvement just uh, in December. So it's airlines are really happy with the plane. And is it just fuel efficiency? Is it is it reliability? I mean, 
newfound reliability, or is it just a combination of everything just seems to be working? I mean, I think it's a combination of all of the above. You know, I wasn't able to get down to uh, dispatch reliability numbers, but everyone said the plane is, is uh, you know, in terms of is the reliability is on par with the NG, if not better. And they pointed that it's a new aircraft. Airlines are happy with, with its performance uh, goal in, in Brazil. So they just recently started flying it out of Sao Paulo, Congonhas, which is the downtown airport there that has a short runway. And, and they were very happy with the short runway performance of the jet. So they plan to fly on more more of those flights. And uh, I think the biggest um, vote of support for the plane is is nearly across the board. You have airlines ordering dozens of new Maxes, uh, goals, keeping, thinking of them, they just ordered another 30 some odd, the, just the latest in a number of deals that are close to wiping out Boeing's sort of net max order loss that they had in 2019 and 2020. And did we just see Alaska order yet another round of max like yesterday? Yep, Monday, 12 more. <laughs> Would have been nice to get in the story, but uh, you know they didn't drop a hint on that uh, when I spoke to them. So, I mean, airlines are obviously finding ways to put the, the aircraft to good use. Alaska seems to have found you know, a really good fit for, for the 737-9, I, I guess is what we're calling it now. Goal, I mean, with, with short field performance, that's really interesting to see that they found success there. What about some of the the larger carriers? Because American, especially, like we talked about, exclusively flying between Miami, not the, not the aircraft exclusively, but flights that are flying from Miami to to LaGuardia are exclusive on the Max. And you've got a huge component of the the Caribbean network. Has there been any hint from from American, especially they're going to take the aircraft elsewhere as the, as they take more? You know, when I spoke to them, they they really said that they're happy with where the max is right now. They already have, I believe, 45 flying, and they're only due to take one more this year, and then they've got a hiatus for a couple of years while they take A321neos. So, you know, I don't, they didn't indicate that they were going to make any any changes to their network anytime soon, just because the size of their fleet is sort of going to be stable for a bit. United Airlines is the one to watch. They now have 250 plus maxes on order, and I don't know the number at my fingertips. And so we're going to really start seeing those planes going just about everywhere in United's domestic and sort of near international network. You know, they've got them in Denver and Houston now, but they've uh, also flown them to Hawaii. You know, they plan to have them pretty much everywhere in, in short order. I mean, purely on frequency, Southwest has been the the leader because they got out of the gate quickly with deliveries and they often have shorter stage lengths so that they can operate more flights. What were some of their comments about how the aircraft has, I mean, been treating basically Boeing's best customer? So, you know, unfortunately I wasn't able to speak to Southwest, but I did speak to the one of the leaders out there at the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association who flies plane captain Greg Bowen. And, you know, he said that the plane is performing really well. I spoke to him shortly after he had actually just flown a max flight to Hawaii, and, and he described the plane is doing a phenomenal job. You know, they also have ordered, I believe, 125 additional maxes since the year began. And, and at least on the pilot side, the crews are very excited about those planes coming in. And uh, it's not all growth. There's going to be a lot of replacement, but, but there is going to be some growth, and, and they're excited about that. And one interesting thing about Southwest was was they decided to retrain all of their pilots on the Max when when it was reintroduced, uh, and so part of the the, man, the training that was mandated is every pilot to do two hours in the simulator to, before they could fly the plane. So 
Southwest has gotten all of that behind them and, and they're, all their crews going to fly the planes. So they've got yeah, lots of crews rotating through, like you said, on, on the many daily flights that they're flying. Yeah, today Southwest has 291 scheduled flights on the 7.3 MAX, while American has far fewer than that, actually, 132. So Southwest is really leading the pack when it comes to MAX flights, and they seem to have really hit their stride when it comes to operating the aircraft. And I think almost all or all of Southwest Hawaii operations are on the MAX now. That's not surprising. It's supposed to be a great airplane to Hawaii. From everyone I speak to, United's doing that. And Alaska is eager to send it to Kona. You know, when I spoke to them, they said that was going to happen this month or next. So uh, I think it's, it's yeah, it's performing very well in a lot of those markets. I'd love, and we'll put the the link to, to Ned's piece in, in the show notes. But I thought that the kicker of your article was, was really interesting. You quoted a pilot talking about the 737 MAX, the, the number of people that want to visit the cockpit after a MAX flight is much bigger than the NG. And I just thought that was really great because the, the question I want to ask is, what are they asking once they get up there? You know, what do they want to see other than, you know, the bigger screens and everything? Like, is it a positive connotation or is it like, I'm on a MAX, I want to see what's going on up here? Well, it's also an interesting data point in that it leads me to believe that there are at least some people out there aware that they're on a MAX. It would be odd if suddenly just more people happen to be asking to visit the cockpit on the MAX while not knowing they were on a MAX. So some people out there must, they must be aware that they're on it. And again, that leads to the point that people just don't care. Well, I mean, you see the safety card or something and, and go, oh, well, I should I should go check things out. Let's go see what it looks like up there. Maybe it's wildly different. For the record, that was a goal pilot who said that. And, and they make it very clear that they, they're just branding every flight they have as a 737 or a 737 MAX safety card online. So there's really no indication until you really get on the plane. So that that does, like you say, Jason, does suggest people are actually taking the time to figure out if they're on a MAX or not. Hopefully that shows excitement for the plane, if anything else. I mean, as things kind of normalize, both in terms of the aircraft itself, but also travel in general, I think we're going to see a lot more people also not caring and just being like, okay, I'm ready. I'll go anywhere on any plane. If you want to fly me to the middle of nowhere on a 737 MAX, as long as I get to go, great. Or as long as the flight isn't canceled or, or, or retimed by seven hours these days. Well, I had to deal with a schedule change that really threw me for a loop. And, and now I, I'm arriving 32 minutes later than I had initially planned. And I'm very upset. They should send you a check for your wasted time. They should. But that's a, that's a whole other segment of the podcast. I think the, the moral of the story is that the MAX is back. It's doing well for airlines. And passengers don't seem to care. So... Moving on, I guess. I mean, I think that's where we're at. People, you know, the industry is going to start moving on. Like, like uh, Copa said, there are bigger things in everyone's mind, whether passengers or airlines, and that's really recovering from this crisis. Now, you know, Boeing's not out of the woods. China still hasn't recertified the MAX. Russia and India, the same, though, though not nearly as many orders in Russia and India. So there's still a lot of work for Boeing to do, though I, the China issue is much more geopolitics now than it is so much about the actual uh, technical airframe and, and MCAS system. So in the U.S., the Americas, Europe, moving on, you know, Asia, there's still uh, it's still still something to watch and see how that develops. Yeah, I, I mean, it, when Ned, in your piece, you mentioned there have been over a hundred and eleven thousand revenue flights by the aircraft. 
since its reintroduction in December. And that, you know, taking a look at our data, it's 73% of those flights have been in North America. So really, the, the question becomes, when does that recovery and, and normalization turn to the rest of the world? And, and certainly, as you mentioned, China with its, you know, pending, we hope, recertification of, of the MAX is kind of the, the biggest nut to crack. As we mentioned, the 737 test aircraft just recently returned from from Shanghai after after a week. Uh, so hopefully things are, are moving in that direction. And when and if that eventually does happen, I'm sure we'll talk to Ned again about how the MAX is doing in China. Ned Russell, airline reporter for Skifton Airline Weekly, thank you so much for joining us. And we will talk to you again in the future. Thanks, Ned. Always a pleasure, guys. Welcome back. And now Jason has gone and redesigned an aircraft. I have. And by uh, I have redesigned, it means I have looked at a picture in a tweet from the president and CEO of Embraer Commercial Aviation, what appears to be a major retooling of their already announced, but still quite a ways off, next-gen turboprop design. They're saying it continues to develop. And it looks like they have decided to move the engines, you know, the, the turboprop engines from the wing-mounted position they were in prior, I believe, to the tail, which is, it's an interesting design. It kind of looks like an E-145 with turboprops instead of jet engines. So they say the rear-mounted engines reduce cabin noise for a jet-like experience. So how about that? I'll believe it when I see it. How about I that? I mean... I will say I am more prone to believe that this is a, a real possible thing, more so than 99% of the other like eVTOL diagrams or any of the other startup for electric aircraft. Because this is – I have to weigh this a little more seriously because it's, it's Embraer. They're, well, sure. They, they, they no, make I, real airplanes. They make real airplanes. That's yeah, a significant yeah. hurdle. I mean, I, d- did they put that on business cards? Like, Embraer, we make real airplanes. I, yeah, I like we, don't, we don't need Boeing's help or anything. No, well, it's, I, it was the other way around. I mean, where things didn't work out. But, but uh, it looks interesting. That yeah, it does look interesting. It, it looks very shiny and new. Is, is yes, what it the, like. the, paint, very, the uh, theoretical paint job is very shiny. But there, there's not much more detail on this. It was just, a, as far as I can see, a simple single tweet. A teaser. If you will. A teaser, yes. I, I'm very much interested to look at what comes out from this. But there was an interesting conversation uh, on Twitter about this that the target market is really, I, I think, Asia and North America. But is it possible that North American airline passengers are still afraid of turboprops? That it, turboprop aircraft never really took off in North America no pun intended there, as much as airlines would have liked with a few exceptions with Horizon Alaska and Porter in, in Canada simply because they didn't really have a choice at that airport. But do you think people are really still afraid of turboprops that they wouldn't want to fly this? Well, I mean, we just had an entire conversation with Ned where we basically found out that nobody cares. But a turboprop versus a jet, it's more visually Exactly. Easy to determine. So I don't know. I think it might be a perception issue rather than an actual aversion where people go, oh, turboprops. Well, this is what I think of them 
versus the actual experience. So if airlines can put them in into practice and where people aren't able to fly otherwise, then they'll fly them. I mean, if the price is right and they can get to where they're going in two flights instead of three or four or or whatever, then people will fly them. At least that's what I think will happen. Yeah. I think that mainly people in the past were annoyed by turboprops more than anything else since they're loud. There's a lot of vibration. They're just not a great experience. Some of the older Dash 8s that Alaska has, they're just not a good experience on board. But if this is really, truly as quiet as a jet and brings the same experience with its rear-mounted turboprops, which is going to be real interesting... I'm going to guess most passengers won't care. Uh, maybe airlines to hide it, they could put it at some of those gates where you can't see the airplane from the gate and no one will know the difference. Yeah, I mean, once you're on, you're like, ah, I don't know. It seems like all is. my flights are out of those gates where you can't see the airplane. So there, there are enough of those out there. Yeah, exactly. It's especially for, for regional jets where you can just kind of cast them to the far end of the terminal. We've got more Pratt and Whitney geared turbofan news. The FAA issued their final airworthiness directive today regarding some of the issues that the PW1500 and the 1900 series engines have uh, requiring replacements of the high pressure pieces of the high pressure compressor. This is based on studying what led to the vibrations and in-flight shutdowns on some of those engines. So we'll put a link to the full description of the airworthiness directive in here. But this uh, seems to to move in the direction of resolving all of those issues that the engines had, especially with the, I think there was ended up being four in-flight shutdowns on the, the C-series for Swiss, as well as some on Air Baltic. And, and so hopefully this kind of puts that to rest uh, with this this final airworthiness directive. And then to kind of close the show, we'll we'll go back to what we talked about last episode with some new airlines adding themselves to the list of mandating vaccines for employees. You've got Qantas has now mandated for all employees, and then Porta becomes the first airline in Canada to do so. So we'll see if other airlines add their names to that list as well, especially given what we've seen today, the news that the US is going to to allow and encourage uh, booster shots after eight months for those that have taken either the Pfizer or uh, Moderna vaccine. And, and Johnson & Johnson looks like it might be necessary, uh, but they don't have enough data yet. So it, it looks like the inclusion of booster shots might lead to other requirements. So I guess uh, wait and see. Yeah. And on that note, also, the uh, U.S. has also extended the mask mandate on public transportation, including all commercial flights to like January of 2022, I think. Uh, so, uh, I think it's January 22nd, 2022. Yeah. So keep the masks on. Don't Indeed. don't be that person who, who keeps it below their nose or whatever. Don't give the <laughs> flight crew any t- any hard time. Just just bring your mask and wear the damn thing. There you go. You you don't want you at this point you want to be the flight crew's best friend. You you don't yes. want to be their their problem. Don't make them get the duct tape. Exactly. And on that note, this has been episode one hundred and twenty-five of Avtalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.